From Cairo, Egypt, this is Democracy Now! Really, even more frail, even more diminished. I, I thought he looked shorter, actually, not just thinner, but shorter. And he was—he had—he uh, was hurt in his forehead. He, we, we, he told us afterwards that he hit his—he banged his head against the wall in a, in a complete meltdown. Ali Abdel Fattah has become one of the world's most prominent political prisoners. The British-Egyptian citizen has spent most of the past decade locked up in Egypt. He recently ended a seven-month hunger strike. Today, we spend the hour with his mother, Leila Swed, and his sister, Sanense. The U.S. has stakes in that regime, stakes in that oppression, and so has responsibility. It's not leverage. Leverage is as if you're not a stakeholder in this you are part of this, and you are a big part of this. You send 1.3 billion of military aid to Egypt every year. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from Cairo, Egypt. In Colorado, the gunman suspected of shooting and killing five people Saturday night at Club Q, an LGBTQ plus nightclub in Colorado Springs, has been indicted for murder and hate crimes. Officials have identified the five victims as Daniel Davis Aston, a 28-year-old trans man who moved from Tulsa, Oklahoma two years ago and worked as a bartender and entertainer at Club Q. Kelly Loving, a 40-year-old trans woman who had recently moved to Denver and whose sister described her as loving, caring, and sweet. 38-year-old Derek Rump, a Club Q bartender whose mother described her as a kind, loving person who had a heart of gold. 35-year-old Ashley Paw, who leaves behind an 11-year-old daughter devastated by the loss of her mother. And 22-year-old Raymond Green Vance. Richard Fierro, a retired military veteran, has been identified as the person who confronted and disarmed the shooter. Fierro was at Club Q to watch a drag show with his wife, his daughter, and Raymond Green Vance, who was his daughter's boyfriend. I want those five families to know that's all I care about. I want those that are in the hospital right now get better. Please get better. I, I, we went out to see a show and have a good time. And thank God Raymond was smiling and he was dancing with my kid. And my daughter got to spend her last day with him. <laughs> Richard Fierro was deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan four times and said in an interview with The New York Times, the experience still haunts him. He left the Army in 2013 due to the brutal psychological and physical toll of war and said he never thought he'd experience the same violence at home. In Pennsylvania, immigrant rights advocates welcomed a second bus of asylum seekers to Philadelphia Monday morning sent by Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott. Abbott says Texas has bused a total of over 13,000 asylum seekers to sanctuary cities, including Washington, D.C. and New York. Since Abbott was reelected in November, he's intensified his hate speech against immigrants, recently comparing the arrival of thousands of asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border to an invasion. 
It's the same term used repeatedly by the white supremacist gunman charged with killing 23 people at a Walmart store in El Paso, Texas in 2019, the deadliest attack on the Latinx community in modern U.S. history. The CEO of one of Ukraine's largest power companies has asked people to stock up on warm clothing and blankets, warning Russia's assault on Ukraine's power grid will lead to rolling blackouts throughout the winter. On Monday, the World Health Organization's regional director for Europe, Dr. Hans Kluge, said Ukraine now faces its darkest days of the war so far. This winter will be life-threatening for millions of people in Ukraine. Half of Ukraine's energy infrastructure is either damaged or destroyed. This is already having knock-on effects on the health system and on the people's health. Put simply, this winter will be about survival. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris met with Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. in Manila Monday, where she vowed the U.S. would expand its military presence in the Philippines. Her meeting comes amidst growing tensions between the U.S. and China over the status of Taiwan and as China and the Philippines square off over disputed islands in the South China Sea. An armed attack on the Philippines' armed forces, public vessels or aircraft in the South China Sea would invoke U.S. mutual defense commitments. And that is an unwavering commitment that we have to the Philippines. Dozens of protesters gathered near the presidential palace in Manila denouncing Vice President Harris's visit and U.S. intervention in the Philippines. We also are against the warmongering of the United States for the sake of asserting its hegemony in this part of the world. We don't want our, our country to be used as the uh, springboard or launching pad of the wars of the United States against China or any other country. We want a peaceful Philippines and a peaceful region. In Indonesia, the death toll from Monday's powerful earthquake in West Java province has soared to over 260 people. More than 1,000 were injured. Dozens more remain missing as rescuers continue to search for survivals in the rubble of collapsed buildings. Many of the victims are schoolchildren. In China, at least 38 people were killed Monday after a fire swept through a two-story factory in central Henan province that housed chemicals and other industrial goods. Local officials said the fire began after welders allowed sparks to fall on cotton fabric, causing it to ignite. According to the Hong Kong-based China Labor Bulletin, an average of 75 Chinese workers died of workplace-related deaths each day in 2020. In more labor news, members of a union representing U.S. freight rail conductors have voted to reject a tentative labor contract. It's the fourth and largest of a dozen rail industry unions to reject the agreement brokered by the Biden administration last September. Many of those rejecting the deal said the tentative contract failed to address chronic staffing shortages, long hours, unpredictable schedules. If any of the unions decides to strike, others will honor their picket lines, setting up a potential nationwide strike by more than 100,000 workers as soon as December 9th. Jeremy Ferguson, president of the International Association of Sheet, Metal, Air, Rail and Transportation Workers, said railroad executives can avert a strike by returning to the table to bargain in good faith. It was uh, profits above all else. Uh, every quarter, they wanted to lower their operating ratios uh, so they could please Wall Street. And they did not worry about pleasing their employees. Uh, I think, uh, you know, a day of reckoning is coming. 
that they are going to have to realize uh, one way or another that they have to treat their employees with respect. In Alabama, Governor Kay Ivey has issued a sweeping order to pause all executions statewide and ordered a review of Alabama's capital punishment system after a series of botched attempts to deliver lethal injections in at least three executions this year. Just last week, Alabama called off the killing of Kenneth Eugene Smith after officials struggled to establish an IV line for his lethal injection. Alabama canceled another execution in September for the same reason. Meanwhile, in Missouri, a 19-year-old teenager is urging a federal court to allow her to attend her father's execution next week. Corianza Ramey is the daughter of Kevin Johnson, who's scheduled to die by lethal injection November 29th after several attempts to halt his death sentence were denied. A Missouri law bans people under the age of 21 from being present at an execution. In a statement, Ramey said, quote, if my father were dying in the hospital, I would sit by his bed holding his hand and praying for him until his death, both as a source of support for him and as a support for me as a necessary part of my grieving process and for my peace of mind, she said. Oregon's outgoing governor has pardoned 45,000 people convicted of simple possession of marijuana. Democratic Governor Kate Brown also said Monday she would void more than $14 million in associated fines and fees. Recreational cannabis use has been legal in Oregon since 2016. In a statement, Brown said, quote, Oregonians should never face housing insecurity, employment barriers and educational obstacles as a result of doing something that is now completely legal and has has been for years, she said. And human rights groups are denouncing the International Soccer Federation FIFA for ordering a ban on any display of support for LGBTQ plus rights by players during the World Cup in Qatar. On Monday, FIFA said it would issue yellow cards to any players displaying rainbow-colored armbands in support of the One Love anti-discrimination campaign. The head of Germany's soccer association joined players, coaches and fans in denouncing FIFA's decision. FIFA has today prohibited a statement in favor of diversity and human rights. These are values to which it commits itself in its own statutes. This is more than frustrating from our point of view, and also an unprecedented event in the history of the World Cup, I believe. Meanwhile, Iran's national soccer team refused to sing the Iranian national anthem ahead of its opening match against England Monday in a silent gesture of solidarity with anti-government protesters in Iran. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're in downtown Cairo, Egypt. The Nile River flows behind me. Today, we spend the hour bringing you an interview I did this weekend after we flew into Cairo from Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, where we covered the U.N. climate summit. We're in Cairo, Egypt, in the apartment of Leila Swaif. She is mother of Ala Abdel Fattah, who is in prison uh, in Egypt for most of the last decade. We are joined right now by Leila Swaif, who is a math professor at Cairo University, and her daughter, Ale's sister, Sana Saif. They just recently visited Ale in prison. 
they hadn't seen him for a number of weeks. He's just finished a seven-month hunger fast. Uh, the last days of that fast, he stopped drinking water during COP27, the UN climate summit here in Sharm el-Sheikh, not far from here in Egypt. I wanted to start by asking you both about your visit. Um, you came out of it shaken, seeing Allah for the first time in quite some time, uh, sitting behind glass as he spoke to you through a, faintly through a phone. Talk about what he told you. Yeah, the visit happened in a glass cabin, like it always happens, which was disappointing. I had hoped, Yani, that it wouldn't be like that. Ala looked even more thin and more weak than the last. The last time I saw him was uh, before this visit was on the 24th of October, so it's, it had been over three weeks. Uh, he looked really even more frail, even more diminished. I, I thought he looked shorter, actually, not just thinner, but shorter. And he was, he had, uh, he was hurt in his forehead. He, we, we, he told us afterwards that he'd hit his, he'd banged his head against the wall in a, in a complete meltdown and tantrum and so on. So that's how it was. Now, because the business was in a class cabin, with uh, you talk to him through a phone, so only one person could talk to him at a time. So Sana so got most of the of the visit. Anyway, we allow her. She she's the one who talked to him. I was just looking, seeing him gesticulating, and that's it. Yeah, he he recounted what uh, what had happened. Um, on Tuesday, he had a, a, a meltdown. Uh, um. he, he began, to, he stopped drinking water on Sunday. Uh, so you get the context. He stopped, he'd stopped, he'd stopped his 100 calories a week before that, on the 1st of November. On Sunday, on the first day of COP, on Sunday the 6th, on the first day of COP, he stopped drinking water. And then on Tuesday, today, when he'd already been, not been drinking water at all for two days, uh, well, then I can tell you what happened. He was, he was uh, they wanted to do a medical checkup for all the cell, for uh, all the inmates. Um, they were reluctant to put on record Ali's hunger strike or his water strike. And so he, they were taken to the medical facility and he insisted on putting his water strike and hunger strike on record and admitting him to the medical facility. So the officers started telling him that he's not cooperating, that he's refusing to do a medical uh, checkup. He said, I'm not refusing, I'm, I just want my hunger strike and my water strike to be put on record. And then they started, they got a new officer that he didn't know and he started dealing with him roughly, like aggressively, talking to him aggressively. And so he snapped, he lost it. And um, he said, I'm not leaving the medical facility. So they started, they got a right force to carry him forcibly back to his cell. This is a man who had stopped water for three days. Um, and so while they were carrying him back to his cell, he... 
as he said it I he said I lost it I don't know what happened but I just kept saying I promise I'll do something to myself I will hurt myself if uh, if I'm not admitted if I if I'm if my hunger strike is not put on record and so when they arrived, when they put him back to his cell he banged his head on the to the wall until it, uh, <clears throat> it bled uh, this incident happened on the 8th and then on the 11th on Friday uh he had calmed down uh, he was taking a shower and he collapsed in the in the in the in the bathroom and um, and that's when he fainted and they did a medical intervention in the cell like they took him in uh, outside of the bathroom and the <clears throat> personnel entered the cell and they made a medical intervention in the cell and he woke up he was put on IVs on a like a salt solution it's called ringer ringer and uh, and glucose he started waking up and but he he was still uh, he was still unable to like move or and they would put like honey in his uh, mouth and that's how they brought him back to life so what happened on friday what happened on tuesday was a was a meltdown what happened on friday was a near death experience and he elaborated a lot on how this felt and how and when he was telling me um yeah he he was really stuck on that moment he kept saying that i was relieved and i got shocked later how much i was relieved that this whole thing is over and and then i started doubting whether i'm doing this to resist am i fighting really for life or am i just tired and I want to be spared of this a, a good part of the visit was on this elaboration of him like talking about how much he felt relief by this uh, near death experience so he decided to take a break from the hunger strike and he stopped uh, he, and he started taking uh, uh, food and um, and he wrote us wrote us this letter saying come and I want to celebrate my birthday with you and he in the visit he was saying like i i i wanted to to stop it and decide whether i go back to my hunger strike or not but after after the discussion we had and after seeing his psychological state my advice to him was no apparently you're you're unstable and you're very vulnerable right now and it's the important thing is to yeah, is to keep your your sanity and you keep you better Did he agree with you? Yes. He tr- he trusts our advice and judgment. Yes, and of course, and Kaman, it made a difference to him that he, he he heard for the first time about all that's being done for him, and about what happened in Cop, and because he, he he had been completely isolated. I mean, that's part of the point of keeping him from having the radio, keeping him from seeing the newspapers, even government newspapers, because you, you know, you can usually guess what's happening, even if they put their own take on it. So, yeah, this insistence on uh, not allowing him a radio, not allowing him uh, newspapers, not uh, it, it, it is deliberate to isolate him so that he doesn't know what is actually happening except when he sees us on visits so for him this was all news yani all that had happened all that sana had done all that mona had done 
all the messages of solidarity I had gotten, all this was new style. Yeah, it it was beyond his imagination that there was a fight out there for his freedom. Like he was, his scope, his horizon was like on a music player and the radio and uh, finding in finding a way to cling back to life. Like we were on totally different frequencies. He's talking from this very dark place, and I'm telling him that we're gonna get you out. There is a big fight of getting you out. We will, we're gonna get you out, and so <clears throat> that, of course, uh, it, it shocked him. It was a surprise to him, but it also gave him some some strength. Sano, you have accomplished, inside and outside of Egypt, galvanizing support for Allah and other political prisoners, uh, holding a sit-in in Britain with your sister Mona in front of the foreign ministry office. Um, also, in the United States, I saw you as you spoke to grassroots groups, as you spoke to congressional leaders, um, talking also about Allah's book, You Will Not Yet Be Defeated Because He's in Prison and Can't Do It Himself. And then in COP27, really being the spearhead of a movement that is bringing together the issue of climate justice and human rights. Did you ever imagine that you could have this effect? No, I never imagined. Um, you know, of course, I was planning to try and use the conference to get some attention on the on my brother and the human rights situation in Egypt. But I, I never imagined that I would be so beautifully adopted by the climate movement and uh, that they would empower us. Uh, it's, it, it was overwhelming and uh, really heartwarming, and I never imagined the scale of media attention or, or the solidarity that, that we've seen. When you spoke to Allah and you talked about the kind of global support that he's getting, um, his statement, any form of political organizing that may solve our global crises has to stem from personal solidarity like this. Um, how did he say this to you through the glass, through that partition? He's, um, so that was after he... he, he recounted what happened to him we started telling him about the campaign uh, so it was starting to hit him and then I gave the speaker to my aunt so she can also recount to him so it's not just me like everybody's telling you it's really big um, and that's when I think it, 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 I saw it in his face like it was starting to hit him that there is a world outside of this very dark place he's in right now and that's when he said this one sentence. Um, it's um, like a part of him, uh, this intellectual political part, for a second got awakened, a glimpse of it. And but it uh, it it before the visit ended, it it became shut again. He he closed on again to this very dark place he's in right now. Um, but I'm glad this. Part of his character exists and is present, and she just needs to get out of prison for it to be to really flourish. Is Allah planning to go back on a hunger strike? Allah, in in the visit, he was telling me, "Should I go back tomorrow?" I said, "No, wait." Um, I gave him a date. I'm not going to say that date publicly, but I know they know the date. Um, 
I, I told him your body needs a rest, but if this date comes without me telling you otherwise, then you go on hunger strike. So, it's, so there is a date set between me and Ali and the Egyptian authorities. Sana Saif and Leila Swaif, the sister and mother of political prisoner Ali Abdel Fattah, will be back with them in 30 seconds. So, so you think you could tell Heaven from hell Blue skies from pain Can you tell a green field From a cold steel rail A smile from a veil Do you think you can tell Wish you were here. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We continue now with my interview here in Cairo, Egypt, this weekend with Leila Swaif and Sana Saif, the mother and sister of the British-Egyptian political prisoner, Al Abdel Fattah. Let me ask you about what you did in Britain. Before COP, you and your sister Mona um, had this sit-in day and night in front of the British foreign ministry through the end of the prime minister trust to Rishi Sunak. What was the response in Britain? And explain what you're demanding. Of course, you, your sister Mona, and Allah himself are British Egyptian citizens. The same, consular access and bring him to London, bring him home to London. The British government is very clear that Ali is a British citizen. Yeah. What we hold them, uh, what, we're, what we're very disappointed with is that they're accepting the Egyptian narrative of not acknowledging his dual nationality. What kind of response did you get to your sit-in? It's, um, so I, I, I sat outside the foreign office for 20 days. Um, this is when we started seeing a new level of solidarity from people I did not expect. Um, <clears throat> and so it was... I thought I would be, like, very lonely. I don't know a lot of people in London. But uh, but it was very... It was very heartwarming, the amount of solidarity I saw. We started getting um, attention from politicians. I got attention from MPs. Uh, a lot of MPs visited me, and our MP, David Lamy, came uh, came the first day. Um, but we started getting attention from the government in the uh, near the end, right before COP, when uh, when we got a phone call from uh, the Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, and then um, and then I got this letter as a response from the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. After you came out of the prison where you saw Ella, you didn't go first to the British government to tell them what had happened. You went directly to the media. Why, Sana? I was really, really angry and disappointed um, that while Ali was enduring all of this, this horrible experience, this was happening at the same time while governments were getting assurances that Ali's health will be preserved. Um, so I was really angry at all of the backdoor promises and all of... I felt like I've been going about it the wrong way, believing in those uh, promises. And, and, and this time, these are not promises that were made in the dark. Like, these are not promises that were made privately. CC... Mac President Macron of France said that Sisi 
uh, told him that uh, he commits to uh, preserving Ali's health um, on on Monday and on that same day um, um, or, or on Sunday and on the second day and day after a unit dealt with Ali forcibly um, so I was feeling uh, really angry and uh, and I, I, I lost faith in that process in that kind of process Leila, tell us about your son Allah. Allah in particular is, is there there is a special bond between us because um, because for four years uh, for five years his father was in jail and uh, before Mona was born he would and it was me and Allah me and Allah in France with me doing my PhD with Thief in jail uh, then uh, uh, even when Mona was born, Mona was the baby, you know. He was the older brother. He was the one who was helping me. I was just remembering today, actually, uh, there was this day in England, in France, where I had this horrible cold, and I was very ill, and I overslept, and I woke up terrified because, you know, I overslept with... Uh, and you only a five-year-old child and a six-month-old baby in the house with nobody to feed them or <laughs> change. And I, I, I didn't understand why, why Mona hadn't cried out. I got up and Ale had gotten up, taken care of Mona. He was six or five or something, changed her, was playing with her very nicely and quietly. I said, well, why didn't you wake me? And he said, Mama, you were sick. <laughs> but, and for me, that's Allah. He, he was always, because he was, yeah, because he was older and because we'd been alone together when his father was in jail, uh, there was a very, a very special bond, a very special bond. You were alone taking care of your two children, Ala and your six-month-old baby, Mona, because your husband, Ahmed Saif, was in prison. At that time, he was a communist, and, he, and he, he, he continued to be a communist in conviction. But at that time, he was part of a communist organization, actually. Uh, and he was arrested and tortured, and uh, confessions obtained from him, and finally sentenced to five years. Uh, it, it, it was a bit like Allah's trial in that they came out, came out on bail and then were tried when they were out and then they were arrested again and so on. So that's how I, how I, how we got Mona. Mona, Mona was born while her father was in jail. So now was the one we got after he came out. The, the one, the one we celebrated with. <laughs> uh, when we got Sana and he was he was twelve years old, so for him she was you know so, so, yeah, somewhere between uh, somewhere in between a, do- a sister and a daughter. <laughs> Talk about that, Sana. How Allah was not just your big brother, but also a father figure to you, twelve years older. Yeah, he was like we're friends. We have a very similar taste in music and in art but also because of the age difference and because of that dynamic, he was also like a mentor to me. Um, 
He's my um, always my biggest champion. I was this bohemian child who changed her mind about what I want to do with life every month probably. But he was always like very excited to the new idea or project. So I want sculpting. So he would like research and find a place and we go and I learn sculpting for a while. Then I just, I like pandas and I want to be a vet. And then he goes and devotes also a lot of uh, time and research into, let, okay, let's, let's study pandas. <laughs> and uh, uh, until, uh, and painting and uh, until I settled on filmmaking and by the time I settled on filmmaking nobody had believed me like of course <laughs> you just wait it out sleep on it honey but Halle was like no no <laughs> he was very excited and I I settled on filmmaking really and uh, um, my first laptop where I, what I, I, I used for editing Halle was the one who got it I mean of course he asked you all to pitch in but this was his project uh, my first ever filmmaking workshop, my first set was his friends, he had friends who worked in filmmaking and <clears throat> they took me with them so I can see a film set. Sana, as a filmmaker, you helped Jahanu Jain make The Square, the Oscar-nominated documentary about the uprising at Tahrir Square. Yeah, I, I wasn't as, uh, I, I was trying to, uh, I was very resistant to the, to to the family, I didn't want to be in politics like the rest of my family. I was, uh, but uh, 2011 got me. So I was before 2011. I was uh, I was very disinterested. I didn't want to know anything about their political activism, and it wasn't the only thing in life. Like right, we had it was part of their identity, but it wasn't uh, the dominating part. Um, but 2011 really inspired me. I was 17 and it was, uh, I went to the first demonstration by coincidence, but then it was really inspiring to me and to my whole generation, really. Sana, when did you first go to prison? You have been in prison for more than three years. Um, 2014. Three years after yeah. the Arab Spring. Yeah, it was uh, during Sisi, of course. Um, I, I was part of a demonstration that was calling for the release of political prisoners. I know it's anti um, it's a, there was this new demonstration law, anti-protest law. And so I was part of it and I got arrested. Um, my main motivation then was really personal. It, I, it was obvious that the revolution was defeated and I, I think if it wasn't for, for my brother being in prison, I would have tried to, to step out of that to, to just go back to my, uh, my, my, my normal life but my Alec was in prison and, um, and so I was advocating for political prisoners and that's how I got arrested and um, I was sentenced to two years but then I, I got a, I, uh, I got pardoned, I got a presidential pardon after a year and three months you have gone on hunger strike. Can you describe how it feels, the stages you go through? I, I was on hunger strike. Uh, I went on hunger strike only once for 72 days. Um, I, it wasn't partial. It was a full strike. Uh, like, I didn't take uh, any water and, salt. water and salt. Yeah. Um, what happens is that... Um, by the fifth day you stop feeling hungry like you don't actually feel uh, you, you don't starve um, 
somehow the body understands that it's not going to get food. But there are phases. It starts, so the body needs energy. So it starts by um, breaking the, like the extra fat, using the extra fat uh, to get energy. After that, after it's done with extra fat, it gets into break muscles to get energy. And that's a very painful phase. After the breaking of the muscles, it resorts to uh, important fats. These are fats that are keeping the organs together, that are in between organs, and these are like the fats that are behind the eyes. That's why I was really shocked when I saw Ali on, in August because his eyes looked sunken. And I, and, I, and I remember when I did my research before my hunger strike, and that, that, and that means we're, we're, we're at a very critical phase. By day 70, I think by, by the end they did make a medical intervention. I had already my... Um, my blood pressure was very low, so I, I would take uh, salt solutions, um, salt sachets, so it wasn't enough. So, I, so I, I, I accepted a cannula and I accepted salt. I did not accept glucose, um, so I had a cannula. Um, uh, yeah, and IVs. So and by the end of it, I had fainted or something had happened. I woke up, I found that I'm put on glucose. Um, but the way they did it was much softer than how... My brother uh, explains like how what I heard from Ali. Um, I was in a hospital. The people who were dealing with me with me was, were doctors. They weren't civilians. They were they were uh, uh, police doctors, but they were doctors, um, not guards. Not uh, I wasn't in my cell. This is so painful to raise, but. You and Allah were in prison when your father, Ahmed Saif, died. It's, it's a horrible news. You hear it anywhere. It's, uh, it was a shock. Like, I don't think it would have been easier to grasp if I was outside of prison. Uh, it's just the loneliness of living this on your own, not with your family. And knowing that they are also lonely, knowing that Mama and my sister, they don't have us around them. Um, I was I. I saw, I dealt with it with denial at first, and I uh, it was a, you, when you lose your father, that's hor- horrible news to hear anywhere. But uh, later, I became angry because I realized I I recalled um, his last visit, and I recalled and I saw it. He wasn't that sick, right? He became more sick. His heart became more sick when I was arrested and when he. He, when he attended my trial um, and that's when I was really fueled with anger um, I, I did not realize the scale of uh, the viciousness against my family until my father's funeral when I uh, after, after the funeral so both of us, me and Ali we attended the funeral as inmates Leila can you talk about your husband's life and what did it mean to him at the end of his life that two of his three children, Sana and Ala, were both in prison? First, I want to highlight how different uh, prisons at that time were from prisons now uh, because it's, it highlights the difference between uh, a regime which is repressive and corrupt and everything but is rational and a regime which has gone mad 
Yani during the Mubarak era, once you and once they tortured you and got what they wanted from you, they left you alone to manage your yani, to, yani okay, you're imprisoned, but you could study, you could, you know, do whatever, yeah. So he, he studied law, he finished his law degree uh, just a few months before being released. And yeah, his, his idea was mainly to be a lawyer and to do some pro bono human rights work. And then yeah, the pro bono human rights work took, off, took over his life until he wasn't doing anything else and wasn't earning any money. <laughs> Because it was pro bono, and everyone started telling him, just come and work with us, because we need you, and we need you, and we want you to be. And he became this amazing human rights lawyer, uh, who was really, really, really very uh, clear about uh, and, and, and focused on human rights. So that was safe. Leila, what did it mean to your husband at the end of his life that two of his three children were not with him? Yeah, yeah. He, 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 he even talked about that. He said, yeah, there's this famous quote of safe saying, I'm sorry, my son, that instead of uh, my heritage being a more free and democratic society, my heritage is that it's the same cell that I was in should see you in it. Now let's talk about the next generation, about Alice and Khaled. He's almost 11. He's nonverbal. Can you talk about the day in 2013 when Ala was arrested at home? So after the raid, after the after they forcibly took Ale from... Uh, we weren't sure whether... Khaled was on the other side of the house, so they, uh, the police forces entered to the bedroom where Ala and his wife were, and Khaled was in the ba- in his room. So he we was like two. He was two. Yes, he was yeah. two. Yeah. Um, we weren't sure. He seemed asleep. His mom, after after the police left, his mom ran to Khaled, and he, Khaled seemed asleep. But we we weren't sure whether he was aware and just faking sleep or not. Um, afterwards, Khalid was uh, was uh, was diagnosed with uh, that he's on the spectrum, and for a while, we weren't sure whether this is a trauma or whether he's actually on the spectrum. Why why is he nonverbal? <coughs> uh, with time, uh, it was settled that he's on the spectrum. He's nonverbal, and there was a trauma, but that's something else. Um, uh, but Khalid has never had a stable life. Um, kids generally need a stable life, but kids on the spectrum, kids with autism, need a stable life. Um, and we've tried everything. Like it's not, it doesn't work without his father being in his life. He's really, really attached to his father, although they haven't spent a lot of time together. So. When Khalid all of a sudden is not allowed to visit Ale, he gets really, really, he acts out and he gets angry and he expresses that um, um, 
and it's very hard to have anything stable for Khalid because you know we, we negotiate some sort of way to get Khalid to visit uh, his father but then they change the rules or they decide that visits are behind the glass shield or Ali is now in a facility was in a facility where um, he got tortured and his torture is present during the visit so you can't have a kid present with things that horrible and that epic happen and we have to change Khalid's routine and it's very obvious that he's really he's attached to his father and he's really angry that the system keeps keeps changing when Ale was briefly released in 2019 um, Ale finished his five year sentence and he was released for six months and then he was rearrested um, although he was, Ale was on, on probation, so he had to present himself to the police station from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., but he still had half of the day of freedom, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. <clears throat> that brief period really mattered with Khalid. Um, they built a new beautiful relationship, and even all of the, the people who work uh, uh, the professionals who work on Khalid's case, such as the speech therapist and uh, psychologist, all of them noticed. It's not just our, us, the family, or or his mom. All of them said that there has been great improvement. This really has. It it really matters to the kid to have his father. He's really attached to his father, and he needs his father. And Ale is a very uh, patient kind father who imaginative imaginative who reads who likes to do research so he, he he whenever he had access to books he read a lot a lot and studied a lot about autism and what's best to do a lot of our letters are about that so in the brief time where I, when Ale was out it was a great time for Khalid but right now it's even much worse because he finally had this strong relationship with his father, and this was taken from him. Sana Saif and Leila Swaif, the sister and mother of Egyptian political prisoner Ala Abdel Fattah. We'll come back to them in 20 seconds. Goes Kindred Lament by Steel Pulse. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in Cairo, Egypt, as we return to my interview with Leila Swaif and Sana Saif, the mother and sister of the British Egyptian political prisoner, Al Abdel Fattah. I asked Sana about Ala's most recent trial when he was sentenced to five years in prison last December and whether they were ever allowed to see the evidence brought against him. The lawyers were never allowed to see, to, to access to the case files. The lawyers were never allowed to make a case and the prosecution never made a case. The judge just gave the sentence like that. 
we, we only know two facts about this case. We only so have one. Yeah, we only know two things about this case. The one thing, uh, the first thing we know is that the only piece of evidence is this Facebook post that he shared about a prisoner dying of torture in uh, in Egyptian prisons. It was someone else's Facebook post that he yes he only shared, shared it, um, and and. The Facebook post mentioned an officer who tortured a certain prisoner who died. Ale was arrested and kept uh, under the authority of this same officer. This is the officer that, um, uh, not that tortured him himself, but that supervised this torture. Uh, his name is uh, <coughs> Ahmed Fikri. Or this is the pseudonym, and Walid Dahshan is the real name. And this man continues to work in... Alet now is transferred from the facility where this, this man is. But we've made several complaints against this man and saying that there is a there is a vendetta. There is clearly a vendetta because it's in the case files. It's not just because we're claiming there's a vendetta. And nothing. The, the, other, the other thing we know, we saw uh, by coincidence, by luck, um, a piece of paper that says... Uh, uh, when when is his release date? And his release date is in 2027. Alec was arrested in 2019. He was sentenced to five years. That's what we all heard in court. But his release date is 2027. Why? Because they decided that the two and a half year he he spent in pre-trial detention are not to be counted in. It's it's pointless to talk about the legal procedure. Really, if it, each step of it is a sham. How many years of the last decade has Allah been in prison? Nine. Nine of the last ten years? Yeah, nine of the last ten years. Now with world leaders calling for Allah's release, what gives you hope? The fact that um, that all of these this injustice is not happening in a corner hidden somewhere, that finally there is a spotlight on it. Um... I'm not very, very hopeful because I'm worried that COP has ended, the cameras will will, will leave. Um, also, Alec's hunger strike is broken, so that means the urgency that maybe the British government maybe have felt, if they have felt urgency, will be uh, 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 will will fade a little bit. But yet, still, we had there was a spotlight. Uh, uh, worldwide spotlight on the on on this extreme injustice, and that gives me hope not only for Ali but but for the rest of the political prisoners and the human rights situation in Egypt. Your yeah. estimate of how many political prisoners there are in Egypt? The estimate uh, is sixty-five thousand. The the estimate that mo- most of like the proper human rights organizations have done. I. From my experience, from what I saw, there is no way to give a proper estimate. Even if the Egyptian authorities themselves wanted to have an estimate, they wouldn't be able to do to get a proper estimate because, especially last my last arrest in 2019, I noticed things have become really hectic on the ground. They have lost control. Um, you have several agencies that arrest. Many of those have facilities. Uh, jails that do not exist on paper, and so national security has its own jails, and these are these are not prisons; these are not official prisons, and so 
prisoners are not admitted. Um, I was in an official prison. I was in 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 a place where I knew like I have a, a number, a code, a record. I am on record. There is a paper trail behind me, and so I exist. But even in the facility I was in, there were people who didn't exist on paper, officers and inmates. One of the girls, um, the um, the girls that were arrested from Sinai, she had a baby. Um, uh, uh, she went into labor in prison, so she, she did not exist on paper, and her her baby did not exist on paper. And seeing the scale of this madness, it has escalated starting 2019. That's why I say I, I cannot believe any estimate because. We will never really know the number un until the doors are open. Um, I, I don't think the authorities themselves are capable of knowing the number. The, the, the machine has become so monstrous and so hectic that it's, it's hard to track. The U.S., you have met with who and how high up did the demands go? I mean, Biden has come to Egypt, has met with Sisi. We saw the pictures of them laughing. In Sharm, I met with Pelosi, with Nancy Pelosi, and with Samantha Power, who is the, uh, the head of USAID. Um, before that, when I traveled to D.C., I had had meetings with people from State Department, uh, uh, a lot of members of Congress and in Senate. I also met with some uh, members of the Senate in Sharm. I don't know. I made appeals to President Biden. I don't know what happened really on the ground. I made appeals and I know the appeals reached the president. I know the appeals reached the, the White House. Uh, I don't know what happened when they met. And what I know is that during the time President Biden was here in Egypt, this is when Alec had his near-death experience, right? That was on Friday. Um, that's what I know. So it does, that does not give me a lot of hope. Of course, if President Biden has pushed for the case strongly, then Alec would be out shortly, would be out soon. Do you think the U.S. has that much power? Absolutely. I don't just think I know. I know the U.S. has that much power. We've seen... Look, we... I, when I traveled to the U.S., a lot of those politicians and those, uh, and even like aides in in, uh, in in Congress offices would tell me, we don't have that much leverage. You don't understand. There was a vicious campaign against me being a foreign spy and uh, um, espionage, and I was being harassed in Sharm el-Sheikh, like even physically, people following me and showing themselves to me that they are following me. You mean these are Egyptians? Egyptians, okay. The day the American administration appeared, all of these people just dis disappeared as if, you, as if you clicked on a button. The, the state media narrative all of a sudden changed. And they started, instead of saying that, uh, uh, that Ale's sister is a spy and, uh, uh, and that um, we're not going to be forced by the West, uh, things like that, all of a sudden they started talking about how... Alec's sister applied for a pardon, and poor, poor thing, he's, uh, he has a kid on the spectrum. Uh, this is really uh, <laughs> devastating. The U.S. does not only have leverage. Leverage is a bad, is a bad way of, uh, of putting it. 
the U.S. has stakes in that regime, stakes in that oppression, and so has responsibility. It's not leverage. Leverage is as if you're not a stakeholder in this. You are part of this, and you are a big part of this. You send 1.3 billion of military aid to Egypt every year. And... You train their, you train their police officers. You train their uh, army officers. You, yeah, they are so the whole uh, military and police apparatus is so dependent on uh, cooperation with the U.S. So dependent. It's not just the money. I mean, the money, the money, Taban is important, but money and bigger money comes from the Gulf and so on. But it's this whole operation is a U.S. operation. <laughs> the 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 uh, the helicopters they use to track people in the desert. The, the, this is a U.S. Uh, the, the this whole. Uh, CC thing is a U.S. security operation. <laughs> but it really, yes, the U.S. can decide if they want to that they want the regime to do this or not do that. I think it doesn't make sense that the U.S. the way the U.S. engages with CC's regime. It's in everybody's interest that Egypt stays a stable country. Yet this regime is making the country deeply unstable. The way the U.S. is uh, the the way the U.S. is engaging its foreign policy in the region is very very <clears throat> stupid. It's not wise, and it's not even within the interests of the U.S. The name of Allah's book of his writings is "You Have Not Yet Been Defeated." Do you think Allah has been defeated? It depends on what level of defeat. And certainly, uh, I personally think that. The uh, 2011 revolution and its generation have been defeated. On a personal level, Allah has not been defeated. That's again, that's one. And when we talked about they're making an example of Allah, that's actually that's probably their main concern now. You make an example of someone, and then you have to release him without having broken him. That is very, very. Hard. You're asking that Allah be released and deported to Britain. I am. Yeah. I, yeah. I, either he is released and he travels to Britain, or he be deported to Britain. I want him. To, I want him safe and out of the country. That's Leila Swaif and Sanese, the mother and sister of the political prisoner Allah Abdel Fattah. I interviewed them in their family home here in Cairo, Egypt, this weekend. And that does it for this show. Special thanks to Sharif Abdokadus, Hani Massoud, Dennis Moynihan, and Nermeen Sheikh here in Cairo. And to Mike Burke, Charina Nadora, Robbie Karen, and Julie Crosby in New York. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.